Well, if you don't mind, um, I'll put this back when I'm done. I like to maybe follow Jesus' footsteps. Uh, he came down to be with us, so I sometimes uh, I just feel so far removed if I'm up looking down. I'd rather just be, and you know, I'm just you know have full-time job working 40 hours a week with Reach Potential Movement, a local nonprofit here in Sunnyvale Mountain View. And some of you may remember uh, me from last year. Tim Sanquist uh, invited me to, to share with you. And it's just really good to be back. Good to see you know, a few faces I, I remember. And, you know, since I was here last, and, and actually let me go ahead and just, uh, we're going to be looking, uh, reading from Luke chapter 3. So if you, there are Bibles in the, um, the pews in front of you if you want to turn there. But since I was uh, last here, it's just been a really neat year. Uh, Tim had uh, invited me to speak something of the nature of, you know, how can we be salt and light here in our neighborhoods, in our community, as God's people? And it was, ironically, around the same topic that uh, two other pastors here in our Mountain View, Los Altos area, had asked me to share with their congregations just the month previous. So uh, I was like, okay, Lord, this is interesting. You know, three different uh, congregations, all in the same area, because I had already... You know, I had preached down <laughs> Vietnamese churches down in San Jose and different places. I had transitioned from GRX, and, and Jim Gardlin was an amazing spiritual director for me uh, during that time of transition, going, Lord, what's up? And, but here in this area, I just noticed, well, okay, here are three congregations that have asked me within about a span of seven weeks to, how can we be salt and light in our neighborhoods and communities? So I shot an email out to these pastors in my own um, campus pastor at Open Door Fellowship, uh, Open Door Church, where my wife and I attend uh, a few blocks away, and said, do you guys want to get coffee? So we grabbed coffee together uh, last March over at the Starbucks next to Trader Joe's on uh, Foothill and Homestead, and it was just a really energizing time just talking about, well, before we kind of equip and, and shepherd our congregations to be salt and light, how are really we being salt and light to our own neighbors, to our own, uh, pa- you know, kids, uh, friends, parents. And it was just a, you know, part time of confession, part like, you know, boy, how do we embody this message that we feel like God's putting on our heart for the congregations that these guys are shepherding? And so I said, well, that was, you know, we were all energized and said well, we should get together, you know, maybe later this year, you know, maybe in six months or a year and just, you know, reconnect. And they're like, no, let's get together next month. So we got together in April. Then we got together in May. And then we started meeting every other week. And Tim was a real catalyst for us. Um, and so we're continuing that journey. Now it's gone from about uh, the five of us to about a dozen pastors. And stay tuned because God is stirring in our area, doing some neat stuff. So why don't you join me in reading. Our passage for this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Tronconitis, and Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough roads, uh, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see, see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do, uh, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. This axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, they asked, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. Well, this morning, um, we're going to look at how God continues to speak to his church. Are there voices still calling in the wilderness? And I believe that God continues to speak to us uh, through his Holy Spirit, through prayer, through uh, our brothers and sisters in our congregations, uh, through one another. Uh, he'll speak to us through um, divine circumstances. Uh, and in, in, you know, though it's rare here in America, I, I, I even believe that God is still speaking through dreams or visions or even angels uh, as we hear reports from the missionary fields in certain countries. So God is still continuing to speak, but is God still uh, speaking and raising up prophets uh, in, in his world today and for his church today. Um, and if so, how do we recognize prophets? Uh, and more importantly, if there are prophets, how are we responding? Uh, are we responding with obedience? Or are we responding with, you know, maybe as we see in the biblical times, Old Testament times, you know, with a little bit of hostility? Or... Um, are we responding with indifference? Or if I'm honest with myself, um, boy, if there is uh, really prophetic voices in the church today, am I just so busy with the hustle and bustle here in Silicon Valley that perhaps I'm not even really hearing God's prophets and prophetesses and his prophetic voice today? Well, um, a few thousand years ago, 
God's people were quite aware when there were prophets in their midst. Uh, if you know the story of God's people in the Old Testament, uh, the role of prophet was a very visible one for leading God's people or speaking to God's people. And then we come to a time uh, where uh, Malachi, as we see in the Old Testament, is kind of the last you know, outwardly spoke uh, a prophet where the word of the Lord comes to Malachi. And then for about 400 years, they call it the silent period, but it really wasn't silent because a lot happened during that time. There wasn't um, really any known prophets. And so to paint the setting a little bit more, um, one of the well-known Old Testament prophets was Daniel. I think most of us, whether it's in a Sunday school as children with uh, being thrown to the, the lion's den or... Um, or recently, if you've been in the book of Daniel, Daniel is this amazing prophet in, in some sense. You know, he was one of the Jews um, during the time when Babylon had come in and, and, and as many prophets had forewarned, uh, conquered. Uh, uh, first the Syrians kind of came in and then the Babylonians, uh, Babylonians came in and they took a, bu- a bunch of God's people, the Jews, exiled to Babylon. And Daniel uh, is in Babylon. He's found favor within uh, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and becomes one of King Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. And uh, one night, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Uh, and he's troubled by it. He pulls some of his you know, closest wise men together, and they're kind of hemming and hawing, wanting to stall. And he's like, no, no, you guys don't, you have no clue what I'm talking about. All right, I'm just going to issue this decree that all these wise men, you guys are all just going to die. So Daniel and his friends uh, hear about this, and they go, uh-oh, guys, we better pray, or else you know, our heads are going to be on the chopping block. And so they pray, and sure enough, God gives Daniel uh, the answer to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And um, maybe I'll just kind of give you the, 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 uh, the hindsight version of the dream, is uh, Daniel goes to... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, your dream about this, this big, awesome statue is, has to do with four kingdoms. And uh, first is the head of gold, which is Babylon. Uh, the second kingdom, uh, the, one, you know, the part of the, the statue that has this chest and arms of silver is Persia. And the belly and the thighs of bronze is Greece. Uh, this is with our hindsight. Daniel didn't uh, say the countries. And the legs of iron and the, and the uh, feet of clay are Rome. And so we see this kind of played out. Soon after Daniel gives this vision, uh, the Persians come in and conquer Babylon, the chest of silver. Then uh, a couple hundred years later, Alexander the Great uh, and, and the Greeks come in, conquer uh, the Persians, and then a uh, hundred something years later, the R- Romans come in under Pompey and conquer the uh, conquer the Greeks. And uh, but here's an interesting thing in Daniel chapter two, as Daniel tells um, King Nebuchadnezzar, but it's recorded for uh, the Israelites and God's people. He says these words in chapter two, verse um, thirty-one through thirty-five. Well, he, he tells Nebuchadnezzar about the dream. And then he says this um, at the, in verse 34. While you were watching you know, the statue, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue at its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And so God's people who are living in exile, and then under uh, Persian, and then uh, uh, Greek, and then Roman occupation, were looking and expecting for this rock to come, that would come and smash these kind of earthly kingdoms and bring the messianic kingdom. They were expectant. And we see that in our passage today, um, uh, where uh, even uh, they're wondering if John the Baptist is this one, this expected coming Messiah. Um, and so in this setting, uh, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a neat story, you know, how God raises up John the Baptist. You know, he comes to Zechariah, who's a priest in the temple, you know, and you know, says, hey, you know, Elizabeth, you know, it's kind of like Abraham and Sarah. They were well along in years. We're barren. Says, you know, Elizabeth's going to be with a child, of course. You know, like most men, uh, Zachariah's a little bit uh, stubborn and goes, really? How can that be? We're so old. And, you know, and, and, and Gabriel goes, all right, you're not speaking until the child is born. And, yes, it is indeed going to happen. And his name will be John. He, uh, this this, this child will be a delight uh, to you. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> I was thinking of you last night as I was kind of reflecting on some things. Having a, I'll just be honest, a very long Saturday. With two, I have two daughters who are tweens, uh, about to become teenagers. They're both kind of our, our middle one. Uh, is already entering puberty. And I'm like, wow, what would it be like to have children that are just filled with the Holy Spirit all the way from birth? Uh, always, you know, and, and I'm sure this will be just temporary. Once they're done with puberty, I'm sure they'll go back to being angels. But all that to say, um, as we go through our passage, I want us to look at, um, look at uh, more at our passage with a real spirit of application and looking at some relevant passages um, or relevant questions as we look at this, uh, this word, that the, um, the good historian Luke, uh, and he loves to give a very orderly account, so he provides a very orderly look at, at the story of John the Baptist. And first is, well, what do prophets do in biblical times, and what do they do today? Um, and basically, it's very simple. Prophets in biblical times communicated God's message to specific audiences. And that is continuing, that's exactly what they do today. Um, in, in verse 2 of Luke chapter 3, we see that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The phrase, the word of God, or the word of the Lord, coming to speak to a prophet, would be v- very familiar to um, most Jews or Gentiles familiar with the Old Testament prophets. Uh, there were no, well, there were self-appointed prophets in biblical times. Um, but a true prophet was a, someone where the word of God came to them. The word of the Lord came to them, and they only spoke what God spoke to them. Um, you know, it, it's very interesting uh, looking at uh, how God calls prophets. Uh, God's assignments for true prophets are really, uh, really unique. 
every prophet had, you know, a slightly different call. And some of them were, were not that pleasant. Um, if you're a people pleaser, um, being called to be a prophet would be especially hard. And I am a self-confessed people pleaser. Uh, when I'm around um, people with influence, I, I like to fit in. I want to belong. And yet, often you see God raising up prophets who will speak hard messages. And even sometimes giving them unusual assignments to illustrate uh, his message to his people. In Hosea 1, the word of the Lord comes to Hosea and says, uh, Go marry a promiscuous woman. Excuse me while I have my butterfingers. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And I've walked with uh, a few friends uh, and brothers in the church you know, over the years who've experienced unfaithfulness uh, from their wives. And just, I can't imagine a more difficult, uh, what a tough assignment to, that Hosea experienced uh, to embody God's message to Israel at that time. Some of the Old Testament prophets were quite young, uh, like Jeremiah. And it's really encouraging, uh, Peggy referred to this passage, how God comes to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1.4, God says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And like probably many of us, uh, Jeremiah responds, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So uh, we see that a prophet speaks God's message to a specific audience. And how neat that, yes, God could call uh, prophets to a very hard task, but before they're even born, he forms them for such a task. I think of Paul's words in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance. And often this call is not, you know, we might experience it when we're 18 or 29 or 59 or 78, but this call is a part of God's ordained uh, purposes for us long before we are born. And, um, well, the second thing is, well, how do we recognize prophets? You know, if there are prophets with us here in the church today, here in Silicon Valley, how do we recognize them? And one of the things that we, we see in Scripture is that prophets are always recognizable by the fruit of their lifestyles. In John's the Baptist day, the re- religious and political leaders um, they liked the places of influence. They liked power. They liked money. They liked these things that would give them status. And yet, um, here comes John the Baptist. In contrast to the religious and political leaders of his day, he wasn't in the places of luxury. He was out in the desert, in the wilderness. Uh, While a lot of times they would wear outwardly um, lavish clothing, he wore animal skin. You know, uh, often, you know, the people uh, with the status would enjoy these, these great feasts. 
uh, good food, good restaurants. Yet here, John the Baptist uh, was locusts and honey. Uh, you know, he was uh, a real contrast. And when he, we spoke, there was a, um, there's this authentic uh, uh, calling with John the Baptist as he called others to a lifestyle of repentance. And um, a couple things that, are, that really stood out to me in our passage is um, his word to uh, the people that, the three audiences that we uh, see Luke highlighting. He highlights, you know, that there's um, the Roman leadership. He highlights that there's kind of the governing leadership, uh, King Herod and, and the Tetrarchs. Uh, and then he highlights that there's, you know, even uh, the spiritual leadership, Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas and the priests. And in Matthew's gospel, uh, he says, he doesn't use the word crowds as Luke does. He says that is really is the, the Pharisees and religious leaders are the ones that came to John the Baptist. And, uh, and <laughs> much like Jesus after him, John the Baptist, come, as these people are coming out uh, in classic prophet form, he, he tells these religious leaders who would outwardly say the right things and and yet their lifestyle was, was a whole different uh, uh, ball game. You brood of vipers. You know, that saying back then was kind of, uh, vipers were full of malice. Uh, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, you know, we have Abraham as our father. Um, you know, the, the religious leaders were always kind of justified that we are God's covenant people. We have Abraham as our father. Just like the, the, um, the false prophets and religious leaders uh, in Jeremiah's day. You know, the, the common message was, well, God really, God's in love with Israel. God loves Judah. You know, okay, we're not the northern kingdom. We're the southern kingdom. We're Judah. You know, and, and the, the false prophets say, you know, God's in love with us. Things are going to be Okay. And God raises up Jeremiah and says, no, go tell him it's not going to be okay. I'm going to bring judgment. God does bring judgment. And they're in exile. And of course, the false prophets, they want to, you know, who, who loves to, who, who does not love to bring good news? Don't worry. God's going to bring you back in two years. You know, don't, don't settle down. You know, God's going to, you know, bring you back, restore uh, Judah. And, and God says, I don't know what they're talking about. Jeremiah you know, write a letter, says, nope, settle down, plant houses, you know, plant gardens, you know, start to marry your, have your sons and daughters marry each other, go into the city of Babylon, and seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, because you're going to be there for 70 years. True prophets will say what often is unpopular, but they will also live lives in, uh, that reflect their message. In 1994, it was a significant year for me. It was the year that I got engaged, uh, in 1994, the, my college girlfriend, who I was madly in love with, uh, said yes. And so we started planning our future. And uh, I worked with an outfit called Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, I was up at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And, and you know, it was, it was an interesting season. I would say I was a product of my culture. I was a very much a conservative evangelical. So I will say I was very much pro-life. And yet, probably maybe with a lot of conservative evangelicals in my circles, I was also very suspect of maybe anyone who had color outside the lines of kind of like our, 
our narrow thinking. And I do recall, I didn't remember all the details, but I remember thinking afterwards, not ahead of time, but afterwards that God has sent a prophet to America in 1994. It was, uh, now I would consider her a giant of the faith, uh, all four foot nine of her. But uh, our country has this interesting tradition. Uh, All the national leaders, politicians, um, even some significant religious leaders will all gather for what we call the national um, prayer breakfast. It used to be the presidential prayer breakfast, but now it's the national prayer breakfast. It's in Washington, D.C., and, you know, it's usually in the winter in February. And it is this, this big to-do. Uh, I mean, if, if you're uh, in the church or in a uh, Christian kingdom nonprofit, and you get invited to the um, presidential prayer breakfast, you know, you're, you're somebody. Uh, of course, all the, all the uh, who's who, the people of status, uh, political leaders all gather. And usually, you know, sometimes you, you get the... Uh, Christians or uh, religious leaders will come in and, and give that good message, the message that people want to hear. Well, in 1994, and you can go to C-SPAN and still watch it on YouTube, uh, I, which I did. Didn't watch all of it. It's, it's about an hour long. But it's really interesting. You see this uh, huge um, lectern uh, in front of all the people, and there's this, this line of dignitaries on the right side, a line of dignitaries on the left side. Uh, you have the Bill and Hillary Clinton, Al Gore. You just have you know, the, the leaders of the day. And the, the curtains behind the lectern part, and you really don't see who's walking out. You just see these people walking out with her. And they put down this, this, this uh, platform, and you see uh, their helper help her up to get on the platform, but there's these microphones that, you know, there's about seven or eight microphones, CNN, ABC, CBS, you know, they all have their microphones. And, you know, it's, it's actually kind of comical. She gets up on this one-foot lectern, and the microphones are still right in her face. So, you know, I think it was Al Gore trying to lower them, and, and still, you know, you barely could just see her forehead over these microphones. And Mother Teresa of Calcutta and I have the insert here in your, in your bulletin. If you want to pull out, she gave this message, which um, is, is kind of a message that she's given often, love until it hurts. And um, I'm tempted to, in some ways, read through the whole thing. But I do want to highlight some passages. And by all means, please, um, and I, I print it out here. I, and I apologize. Uh, I thought I'd, be, I'd do Carmen a favor and print it to one page, but... When I saw it this morning, I went, oh, my goodness. I think I was using 200% on my computer screen. Those words were quite small. So uh, Mother Teresa stands up and in front of our nation says, God loved the world so much that he gave his son. It was a giving. God gave his son to the Virgin Mary. And what did, he, what did she do with him? As soon as, she, as Jesus came into Mary's life, immediately she went into haste to give that good news. And as she came into the house of her cousin Elizabeth, Scripture tells us that the unborn child, the child in the womb of Elizabeth, leapt with joy. While still in the womb of Mary, Jesus brought peace to John the Baptist, who leapt for joy in the womb of Elizabeth. And as if that were not enough, as if it were not enough that the God, the Son, should become one of us and bring peace and joy while still in the womb of Mary, 
Jesus also died on the cross to show that greater love. He died for you and, and for me and for that leper and for that man dying of hunger and that naked person lying in the street, not only of Calcutta, but of Africa and everywhere. Jesus insisted that we love one another as he loves each of us. Jesus gave his life to love us and tell us that we who have um, to give whatever it takes to, good, to do good to one another. And in the gospel, Jesus says very clearly, love as I have loved you. Jesus died on the cross because that is what it took for him to do good to us, to save us from our selfishness and sin. He gave up everything to do the Father's will, to show us that we must too be willing to give up everything to do God's will, to love one another as he loves each of us. If we are not willing to give whatever it takes to do good to one another, sin is still in us. That is why we too must give to each other until it hurts. But I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child. A direct killing of innocent child, of an innocent child murdered by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? How do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? As always, we must persuade her with love, and we remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. Jesus gave his life to love us. So the mother who is thinking of abortion should be helped to love. The mother, thinking, the mother who is thinking of abortion should be helped to love. That is, to give until it hurts her plans or her free time to respect the life of her child. The father of that child, whoever he is, must also give until it hurts. I'm just going to read the whole thing. By abortion, the mother does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father is told that he does not have to take any responsibility at all for the child he has brought into the world. That father is likely to put another woman into the same trouble. So abortion just leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to say any violent, to use any violence to get to what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. And then she says this, and this is very powerful. Please don't kill the child. I want the child. Please give me the child. I am willing to accept any child who would be aborted and to give that child to a married couple who will love the child and, and be loved by the child. Um, I remember hearing some of her speech. I remember kind of being blown away. She also kind of rebuked our nation for, she went around and visited a lot of our, our senior homes. And she says, wow, you're, they're so much more bigger and more plush and more, they're warmer and more comfortable and air-conditioned. And these seniors have everything they want, but every time I would walk in, they're all staring at the door. They were so lonely and abandoned and forgotten. And none of them were smiling, even though their comforts were so much beyond the seniors um, and the dying in our own country of, of India. 
And she went on to say many things, but the loudest one was her concern over the, the unborn child. And it wasn't, pro- it wasn't overnight. It wasn't even, you know, within our first year of marriage. But my wife and I started to realize a little bit of the message, not only did John the Baptist bring to the people of his day, which was a very simple message. If you have two shirts, give the person without a shirt your extra shirt. Be content with your pay. Do what is right. And Mother Teresa's message of just for my wife and I, especially, it was just a period of probably about two years of me wrestling with, well, what does it mean to be pro-life? And I'll be honest, in my incredible maturity of, you know, probably being a 26-year-old in, in 1994, I was one of those, oh, yeah, you want me to sign me a, a pro-life petition? I'll sign any petition. Is this is how I need to vote? Okay, that's how I'll vote. But then I started to look at some of the DNA of what Mother Teresa is saying. Huh. Am I really pro-life? Am I someone, my wife and I are now married, will we adopt any child, no matter its physical condition, no matter if its mom was on AIDS or on drugs and has alcohol fetal syndrome or whatever the condition, ethnicity, deformity, mental illness. How pro-life am I? My wife and I would ask, how pro-life are we? And there came a humility uh, and a brokenness and a deeper um, understanding of what does it mean to be a prophetic voice within our church, but also within our community. You know, it's easy to stand up and say what God's against. It was a lot harder for us to say, you know, what God's for and look at our lifestyles that embody that. And though we have not gone to the uh, degree of adopting, uh, the opportunities to come along, and I was just saying, well, back then there were crisis pregnancy centers, and then community pregnancy centers, and now real-life option centers. The how to come alongside, just as uh, Mother Teresa and others have, set, have said, is like, well, what can we do to make it, s- to come alongside the woman with an unborn child, whatever her circumstances are, and to come alongside and make abortion just the least desirable option. Um, and that is still uh, the story that many of us uh, find ourselves in today and a great opportunity to respond after today's service. But there's a lot of other things that God is saying to our church today other than uh, sanctity of life. And in Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 11, uh, we see that God uh, appointed some to be prof- uh, apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, shepherds, and some to be teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that we may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, the fullness, the measure of Christ, that we may become mature. And confession, half of the sermon maybe is a confession. I know what it, okay, yes, I can see what it is, you know, for God to appoint evangelists and pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. 
But how is God today appointing prophets and prophetesses to be his prophetic voice to us today? What is God saying to us? And if he's speaking, am I uh, in a position to hear? Am I uh, open that God still speaks to prophets today? I'll be honest, when Mother Teresa spoke uh, at our National Prayer Breakfast, I, my paradigm towards Catholics was such that, well, I'm not sure God would speak through a Catholic. She, what she said was so powerful. I, I didn't know much about her. I mean, I knew who, okay, she's in India. And I, I, when I remember learning the life that she lived, I'm like, this is a prophet, a prophetess. She speaks God's word to us today. So as we, um, we go to prayer, I just want to look, look at one, right before we go to prayer, I just want to point out one last thing that prophets do from our passage. The people are wondering if John the Baptist is the one if he might possibly be the Christ, the Messiah. And John answered them, no. I only baptize you with water. There is one come to me who will baptize you with fire, who's much greater than I. I mean, I'm just not even worthy to untie his sandals. If you want to recognize prophets today, one, their lifestyles will really match what they're having to say. And then the second thing is they will be pointing the church